0: Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Well, today the story of uh, the book of 1 Samuel takes us right up to the anointing of the first king of Israel. Saul. Last week we saw, we were introduced to Saul in chapter 9 as he left his home uh, in Gibeah to search for some missing donkeys. And through that seemingly random and ordinary event, we saw God work uh, sovereignly, providentially to bring Saul to the prophet Samuel. And Samuel has this special message for him that he has not yet given him. And so when chapter 8... Nine ended Saul was about to head back uh, home and Saul and Samuel has said to him, "Let your servant go on ahead and you stay behind because I need to deliver to you the word of God. And so chapter 10 opens with Samuel delivering the message from God that he has for Saul So look with me at verse one. It says then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, and kissed him, and said, "Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies, and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage, and so in this verse. Samuel is giving Saul for the very first time the knowledge that he's chosen him to be this first king. Although, please notice, he still does not use the word king. He uses that same word, prince over his people or leader over his people. He does not call him a king. And so there's something to be seen even in that, which will, which will continue to unfold here. So he says, you shall reign Over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So he gives Saul a very specific job. He doesn't say you're going to be king over the people, and that means you can do whatever you want. That's not what he says. He says you've got a job to do as this leader, this prince over the people of Israel, and it's specifically to save the people from their surrounding enemies. From the hand of their surrounding enemies. So, the job of Saul as the king of Israel is basically to protect the people of Israel from the enemies surrounding them. This, in other words, would be military strength, right? Saul is going to lead the people of Israel in battles against the enemies of God. The chief enemy that we've seen over and over in the book of Samuel that surrounds them are the Philistines. They're actually going to come up later in this chapter in a very important but subtle way. So he gives him a specific job. He says, you're not the king like to do whatever you want with the people. You have a particular job to protect them from the hands of their surrounding enemies. And there's reminders threaded throughout this statement that the people don't belong to Saul. He says, you're going to be prince over my people, the people of the Lord, over his people Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, that is the people who belong to the Lord, and Saul will save them in this way from their enemies. And so it's important for us to see that God, even though he is delegating some authority to Saul and to anyone who would then occupy the office of king after Saul. He is delegating a certain amount of authority and a certain kind of authority, but he is in no way stepping down as the true and rightful king over his people. Though the people rejected him as king and said, give us a king like all the other nations, and God interpreted that as, and I think his interpretation is right, as a rejection of his leadership over them, Nevertheless, God maintains, this is my people. They're going to serve my purpose. I have uh, plans and purposes for them. And yes, Saul, you will have a role to play in leading, in guiding, in protecting, in serving my people. But they are not your people. Don't be mistaken even for a moment. I think it's good for us to see here just something about the nature of authority. All authority is derived. That means there's no human authority in the world that has unlimited, unilateral authority over other people. That's just not the way it is under God, under a sovereign creator and ruler. All authority is derived. Paul said as much in Romans 13, verse 1, where he said, all authority is given by God. And he's speaking there specifically of government, of, like, of civil authorities. So even those in, in civil, we might even say secular, positions of authority within a country or, or a land only have their authority because God gave it to them. And he only gave them authority to for a specific function, a specific purpose. In Romans 13, it would be to wield the sword against evildoers. That's a sermon for another day. But all authority, human authority, is derived authority. In other words, nobody has the right to authority over anybody else unless God grants that authority to them. That's the way that it works. And it's important for those of us who are in positions or places of leadership To recognize that we, though we have some authority, we are under God's authority. And that ought to impact the way that we lead. Husbands, your leadership and authority in your home isn't a, you do what I say because I'm the man. That's not what authority looks like. In a husband-wife relationship, no. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that the authority, the leadership of a husband ought to look a lot like sacrifice. Giving up of oneself for the benefit of another. A lot like Jesus did. And that's what he makes explicit there. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So a husband's leadership or authority is not a domineering, I get my way kind of authority. It's a, at my expense, for your benefit kind of leadership. Parents, your children aren't ultimately yours. They're God's. Your authority, your leadership over them is really a stewardship. God has entrusted authority to you for a season In a limited way, to lead, to guide, to help, to protect, to serve, to shape. It's very clearly an important authority, but it is derived authority. It is under the authority of God. So we need to see our leadership as a stewardship. Bosses, employers, if you have people who work under your authority in your office or in your workplace, you're... Employees and co-workers don't belong to you. You ought to treat them with dignity and respect. You ought to lead them carefully and gently and with integrity. Certainly this applies to church leaders, to pastors, elders, deacons, anyone who uh, has a, a place of teaching the scriptures or discipling others within the church. The, the authority that people in the church have is a derived authority, and we we lead we serve under the authority and leadership of god and in fact, the apostle Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd, and then elders in a local church as under shepherds that 's a really good way to look at it. Christ is the real capital s shepherd of his people, and pastors and elders are simply under shepherds, and that's why he exhorts elders in 1 Peter 5, verse 2, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He doesn't ever say shepherd your flock, because they're not your flock, pastor. They're God's flock. They're Christ's flock. So we need to see something there about leadership. All authority is derived from God and and demonstrated and given under the authority of God himself. And so that is the way we ought to approach leadership and to hold leadership with humility, with integrity, and recognizing God's authority over us. And so we see that in the exhortation here to Saul. Here's the role that you're going to have. You're going to be prince over the people, but not your people, God's people. And your job is going to be to protect them, to serve them, not to beat them into submission or to, to force them to do what you want them to do. That is never the role of a king in God's economy. Of course, there will be abuses. So let's continue. He's told him uh, this jo- his job is to protect his people. And I want you to notice the language he uses there, because this will come up again in this chapter. He says, you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. You will save the people of God from the hand of enemies. Keep, just bookmark that in your mind. Because saving or salvation is going to come up two other times in this chapter. and I think it's important. Let's keep reading. He says, you will, he, this will be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you. So now he's going to give him some divine confirmations. He's going to predict for him three things that will happen as God confirming to Saul, this is really my word. This is really from me. Look at verse 2. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son?'" Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So we pause there before things actually start to happen. Samuel has given Saul three things to look for that will confirm to him God has given you his word. God has truly anointed you, appointed you to be the king over Israel. And the first of those is that you're going to meet two men who will say to you, "Your father is worried about you." And I want you to notice the exact wording that he says that they will give is exactly Like what Saul said to his servant in chapter 9 verse 5, when they were looking for the donkeys and they had come as far as the land of Zoph, where Samuel lived, Saul said to his servant in verse 5, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Saul said that to his servant. There There wasn't an audience listening in on that. That was a private conversation between Saul and his servant. And now Samuel is saying, you're going to meet strangers on the road who are going to say to you the very things that you said to your servant in private on your journey to find the donkeys. They're going to say to you, the donkeys have been found, and now your father's not worried about them, he's worried about you. Like the exact same thing. A a providential divine confirmation. That you've really heard from me. The second sign that he's going to give him is that he's going to pass three men who are going up to Bethel. That is, they're going to worship God and they're carrying the resources to make sacrifices and to honor God. And so uh, they've got uh, bread and they've got wine and goats and they're on their way to worship God. And he says, the guy carrying bread is going to give you two loaves of bread. Remember, there's Saul and there's his servant. So I think that the two loaves of bread are probably one for each of them. want to also draw your attention to something that Saul said to his servant in chapter 9. Right after he said, we need to go back because my dad's going to be worried about us, the servant said, well, there's a prophet here. And everything he says comes true. So why don't we go there, and maybe he can tell us what we should do. And then verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. The servant ends up finding a shekel of silver or something in his bag, and so they decide they can give him that. But the point is that Saul mentioned to his servant, we're out of bread. And so, look, they're meeting three men on their way to worship God, and one of them is carrying bread. And he's going to, randomly, spontaneously, of his own accord, give Saul some bread. Again, a very interesting tie-in to something that only Saul and his servant would have known. He's giving you bread. Second confirmation. And then the third confirmation, and this is a little strange we read this and we kind of go, what exactly is going on here? He says, basically, that the Spirit of God, we would say the Holy Spirit, will rush upon him and he will be caught up in the prophesying activity of this group of prophets. So along come these prophets with their guitars and stuff, singing songs of worship and prophesying, whatever that, I don't know if they're making predictions about things or if they're just telling the Word of God and his works and praise, we don't have details about what this prophesying entails. But nevertheless, here's this group of worshiping prophets, and the Spirit of God, it says, will rush upon Saul, and Saul will begin prophesying along with them. Now, the important thing about this rushing of the Spirit is that this phrase is only used here and in the book of Judges when it referred to Samson Attacking a bunch of Philistines and killing them. And so it said the Spirit of God rushed upon Samson, and then he was, you know, victorious over these thousand Philistines or whatever it was with the jawbone of a donkey. So the rushing of the Spirit upon a person clearly means a, an empowerment for a task, and specifically the task of. Attacking the enemies of God. Because remember what Samuel said Saul's job was. You will save the people of the Lord from the hand of their enemies. So your job is attack the enemies of God. And so then you're going to meet some prophets, and the Spirit of God is going to rush upon you. And by the way, you're going to find there some Philistines. Remember, this is at the the top of this hill at Gibeath Elohim. And he said in verse five, there is a garrison of the Philistines there. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets. The spirit of God will rush upon you and you will prophesy. And then he says to him, do what your hand finds to do. I think that means Go see the Philistines and fight them. I I think that's what that must mean. Your job is to fight the enemies of God's people. While you're going home, you're going to come across some Philistines who are the enemies of God's people. When you come across the Philistines, the Spirit of God is going to rush upon you, which in the biblical context means to empower you to fight against the enemies of God. And so do what your hand finds to do. I think Samuel is saying here, God will empower you to fight against these Philistines and to force them away from God's people. And so he has, as it were, his first assignment to fight against the Philistines at Gibeath Elohim. So all of that would be a a, a confirmation to him, a divine confirmation that God has really appointed him as prophet. I mean, excuse me, not as prophet, as king, as leader over the people of Israel. Because these things are going to unfold just as he said. So I want you to notice what Samuel says in verse 8. So he's just given them this assignment. When you find the Philistines, the Spirit of God will rush upon you, do what your hand finds to do. I think it means fight the Philistines. Then, verse 8, go down before me to Gilgal, And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Even the king, even the leader over Israel, is subservient to the word of God. He is not to move until The prophet has spoken God's word to him. He is not to act until he has heard from God, here's what you are to do. This is an extremely important lesson for Saul to learn as he's beginning to take on this role of king. You have some authority. It's derived authority. It's authority that God has given to you. It's limited authority. And it lives underneath the word of God. You need to wait. He's going to make him wait a week, wait until I show up and tell you what to do. Very important for us to see the the submission of leaders, of leadership and authority to God's word. And I think there's something for us to learn there as well about the role that God's word is to play in our lives we should see ourselves as under the authority of God's word. When he speaks and guides through the scriptures, that's where we take our cues. That's where we learn how to live, what to do, what not to do. Where God's word has not granted authority or permission, Christians are not free to act as they choose. For example, Christians are not to marry unbelievers. That's a clear command in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But it happens all the time. Christians go, well, seems like the right person. Well, we really get along well, I really love her. God's Word doesn't give you the freedom to cast that aside. If you're a Christian, you're to marry another Christian. And it's that simple. Cheating on your taxes to keep more money. I know it's a little bit timely. This is tax season after all. I hope that you've all been very honest in the reporting and filing of your taxes, even if it's going to cost you money. Because it's very tempting to cut some corners, right? And to, to maybe make things look a little bit different than they really are to kind of save yourself a little, to keep Uncle Sam out of your pocket, right? But if you're cheating your taxes, you are dishonest. You are dishonoring God and violating principles and commands in his word. So if the word of God doesn't give freedom and authority and permission to act in a certain way, Christians are not free to act in those ways. It's that simple. we are under the authority of God. On the other hand, when God's word speaks in a command, in a positive command, we are obligated to obey it. Love your neighbor. Forgive one another. Confess your sins to one another. Right? These are commands of God in his word. We're obligated to obey them. James would exhort us, be not hearers only of the word, but doers of the word. We don't want to be guilty of hearing God's word over and over and going, yeah, 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 I should do that sometime. We need to put it into practice because our lives are... In submission to God's word. This is where he rules us. This is where he directs his authority over us. So Saul should learn this lesson right up front. You're king, yes, but you're king over God's people and under God's authority. And God directs you through his word that is by the prophet Samuel. You do as God says. This is what Saul should learn. And without giving too much away, Saul doesn't learn this lesson very well. So the story continues. He's told him what's going to happen. And so now Saul is going to turn and head back home. Verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. I think he inclined his heart toward the Lord, maybe. And all these signs came to pass that day. That's a summary statement for the first two signs. He doesn't give us the play-by-play, but but they happen, just as Samuel told him. But then he's going to zoom in, starting in verse 10, on that third sign of the meeting of the prophets and the prophesying and all of that, because it's important for us to see how Saul responds. Verse 10, "'When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them.'" Again, just like Samuel said it would. "'And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, "'What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets?' And a man of the place answered, "'And who is their father?' Therefore it became a proverb, "'Is Saul also among the prophets?' kind of like when something really unexpected happens or somebody's associated with something you don't, wouldn't ordinarily think them to be a part of. Wait, is Saul a prophet now? right? That's kind of the way it, way it goes. When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. That means he went home. Now, he had a job to do. When he had finished prophesying, he went home instead of fighting against the Philistines who were gathered at Gibeath, Elohim. Do what your hand finds to do, right? He met the prophets. The Holy Spirit rushed upon him, just like he said it would, empowered him to do the task. He prophesied, just like he said he would, and then, instead of doing what his hand found to do, he went home. Saul goes home. And so we see the first act of disobedience on the part of Saul. And it's a passive disobedience. It is just uh, not doing what he was supposed to do, not submitting rightly to the word of God. So he doesn't attack the Philistines at Gibeath Elohim. Instead, he goes right home. Now, when he gets home, his uncle is going to talk to him about his trip because he's been gone for some days now, Right? And so Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. When we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. Right? You went and saw the, the prophet of God. Right? You saw Samuel. What did he say? Look at, what, look at how he answers in verse 16. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Maybe you left out a key detail in the retelling of this story. What did Samuel say to you? Oh, he told us the donkeys were found. Oh, yeah, and by the way, something about like me becoming the king of all of Israel, even though Israel's never had a king, and then telling me to go attack some Philistines that I didn't really do, and all these crazy miraculous signs that came about to confirm God's word. Not a mention of any of that. He told us you found the donkeys. And that's it. So we get another glimpse of Saul at best as hesitant, as reluctant to receive God's word or God's plan. Did he not believe God? Maybe he didn't believe that it was really from God. That seems a little bit hard to take given all these confirming signs that he had just participated in. On this journey home, was he just not willing? Did he not want that? God, why have you chosen me? I don't, this is much too much responsibility. I don't want that. And so he's just trying to see if there's a way to weasel out of it. We're not sure. We don't have that much insight into what's going on in Saul's mind or heart. But we can see plainly that he is resisting the word and plan of God in his life, and so he intentionally leaves out some important details about the kingdom when his family is asking him, how did, that, how did the thing go, and what did Samuel say? He told us he found the donkeys, and that's not the most important thing he told you. Nevertheless, once again, passively, Saul is hiding, Saul is keeping God's word at arm's length, and he hides the kingship from his family. So now, the scene changes to a very public setting where Samuel gathers all of the people of Israel together. And he's going to say, it's time for God to tell us who he has chosen as king. All right? So he hasn't told them yet. Only, at this point, only Samuel and Saul are aware that Saul's been chosen and anointed to be king. All the people seeing Saul prophesy at Gibeah the Elohim just went, that's weird, Saul's a prophet now? But nobody had any inkling that he was going to be king. Even Saul's servant was not with him when Samuel anointed him and told him God's word. So only Saul and Samuel know about this. So look at verse 17. Now God called together... Uh, excuse me, God called, uh, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the land of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Samuel apparently didn't get the notice or didn't have good instructions about how to be the MC for a festive sort of celebratory occasion, right? He's supposed to say, it's time to meet your king. Let's all, you know, like clap and cheer. He's like, all right, everybody, you rejected God. And so God said he's going to give you a king. So it's time to figure out who that is, right? So kind of a downer, kind of a a depressing way to open this ceremony. Nevertheless, please observe, mention number two of salvation. Earlier he had said to Saul, you will save God's people from their enemies. And here in verse 19, he says, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. Saul will have a role to play of saving the people of God. And now Samuel points out the fact that God, who really is the one who saves his people, and he even gives a little bit of a history about how he saved his people from calamity down through the ages, you've rejected him. You've rejected the God who saves you. So now he divides them into tribes. Present yourselves before the Lord by tribes and by thousands. So all of the tri- the twelve tribes of Israel gather in these groups and break up into thousands. This is a lot of people that are all gathered together. So this would be quite an undertaking. And then Samuel, verse 20, brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Now the casting of lots was a way that they made decisions because it God would providentially lead. In, it's similar to a ca- the casting of dice. I wouldn't recommend this for making decisions today unless it's a totally two equal options and you're just not sure which one to do. Then maybe it's fine. But I wouldn't necessarily say this is the best method of decision-making for Christians today. However, they would cast lots and trust that where the lot fell or what side of the dice was showing was what God intended to happen. And so they begin to cast lots to whittle down to a tribe and then to a family and eventually to a person. So he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So once again, just note God's mysterious, invisible, miraculous providence in the casting of lots going from the thousands of Israelites down to the tribe of Benjamin and then down to the clan of the Matrites and down all the way to Saul, the son of Kish. By the way, the guy that's been privately anointed king, now God publicly demonstrates by the casting of lots that Saul indeed is the man whom he's chosen. There could not be any firmer, clearer, more obvious Confirmation for Saul. This is God's doing. But look at Saul. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? Like, well, maybe that's the wrong guy because we don't even know where he is. The Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. He's hiding. When... The lot is cast, and his tribe is chosen, and his family is chosen, and then he is specifically by name called out as the one that God has appointed. He's hiding. He found some bags nearby, and he is out of there. Please don't look back here. And apparently it was almost successful, because people were like, well, maybe we should pick somebody else, because I don't know where he is. But God's watching, and he's like, he's behind the bags, And so, oh, oh, look, oh, look, here's Saul. Wow, he's tall. That's the first thing I noticed. He's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And so Samuel goes, here he is. There's nobody like him. And you're almost going, I sure hope that's true. Wow, this, this is our king? He's hiding in bags trying to avoid God's calling, trying to hide from God's will plainly revealed and confirmed over and over, he does not want it. Don't put me in this position. And we start to learn something maybe about the personality of Saul. He does have, seem to have this insecurity that, that comes up again and again throughout his time as king and will eventually spiral downward into madness and jealousy and it gets really ugly as the book goes along. And you get a glimpse of that here. More than personality, this is simple disobedience. And again, it's passive disobedience. He's not doing something in contradiction of what God had told him to do. He's just trying to hide. He's just trying to stay out of the way. It's like if I don't make eye contact with the teacher, maybe he won't call on me. It's that kind of a thing. I just don't want to to, to do what God is asking me to do. And sometimes disobedience is like that. Sometimes disobedience is just a matter of hiding. It's just a matter of putting our fingers in our ears and acting like we have no idea what God said. When really, we know full well. And we just don't want to. We just don't want to do what he says. God makes his will plain to us in the scriptures, and we must set our hearts to do them. I love the example of Ezra. Our our discipleship groups in the middle of the week are going through the book of Ezra and, and Nehemiah right now. And Ezra 7 verse 10 gives us this beautiful description of the heart of Ezra. It says he had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach it to all Israel. Ezra's heart toward God's word is, I want to know it, I want to obey it, and I want to teach it and to share it with others. That is such a beautiful picture of the right heart of a disciple. Somebody who wants to follow God and to know God says, God, give me your word. Let me learn from it. Let me study it. Let me grow. Let me obey it. Give me the strength to do what it says, and then let me, t- let me teach and help others in the way. But that's not what Saul is doing here. And often, that's not what we do. Often when God's will is clear in the scriptures, we just don't like it that much. And we try to hide from it. it can, our disobedience can be passive, not necessarily violating uh, active commands of God, just quietly leaving out the things that we know God's called us to do. Have you ever decided not to speak of the gospel when there was an opportunity to do so and you just went, this would be uncomfortable. This would be weird. He's going to think I'm a weirdo. I'm just not going to say anything. Have you ever avoided taking a stand on an important issue because of what others might think about you? Have you ever realized at the end of a day that you've never even said a word of prayer to God or opened the Bible at all? These are things we know that God calls us to do. Sometimes it's just easier to hide away behind the bags. So Samuel has, they finally found Saul, and Samuel's pointed him out, and the people embrace him. Long live the king. If this is our guy, we're all in, right? We demanded that God give us a king, and here he is, and so we're going to be behind him. And so now everybody's going to go home. Look at verse 25. Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Probably had instructions like in Deuteronomy chapter 17, where there were some stipulations given for how a king was to behave and the kind of man he was to be. But anyway, he writes the duties of the kingship. Here's your job. Here's the kind of person you need to be. And he put them in a book, and he laid it before the Lord, probably in, uh, in, in the tabernacle where they would worship. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. All So there's some of the men who were like, we're going with you. We're your right-hand guys. Just tell us what you want us to do. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. And there is the third and final mention of salvation in this chapter. At the beginning, in Samuel's anointing of Saul, he said, you will save the people of God from their enemies. Then when Samuel told all the people about what they had done in rejecting God, he said, you have rejected the God who saves you from your calamities. Who's the real savior here? It's God. And you've said no to him. So here's your guy. Here's Saul hiding in the bags, he's the one you, that's going to be your king, good luck. And so now we have some people who aren't really sure that Saul is the right guy. And so they say in verse 27, how can this man save us? And I think that people had a reason to doubt Saul. The people had good reason to wonder whether Saul's really the right guy. God gave him the task to attack the enemies of God and to save his people from them. And already in this introduction, we see three examples of his hesitance to follow through with God's commands. And he doesn't carry out what God's given him to do. He doesn't attack the people, of the Philistines at Gibeath Elohim. He doesn't say anything about the kingdom to his family when they ask how his conversation with Samuel went. And now when, when he is explicitly called out by name in front of all the people, he's hiding it begs the question, is this the king who will truly save God's people? Salvation is this theme that runs throughout this chapter. You'll save your God's people. They've rejected God who saved them. And these people who now doubt, is he really going to save us? And I think that question uh, is very fair. You know, In the words of John the Baptist, when he was... Having maybe a moment of doubt about Jesus as the Messiah, he sent someone to Jesus to say, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we wait for someone else? And I think I have the same sense here. Like, is this really the guy that God chose to be king? Or is there maybe somebody else? The answer, of course, is that Saul will not be the one to set things right for the people of God. He is not the one who will ultimately fight against their enemies and save them. Now that king would come nearly a thousand years later and we find his story in the New Testament gospels. And in that story we see Jesus Christ faithfully doing the work that the Father gave him to do. He says over and over, I do what the Father gives me to do. I say what the Father tells me to say. I am I must be about my Father's Work, my father's business over and over, and we see him faithfully obeying the word and plan of God. We see Jesus fighting and triumphing over the enemies of God's people, not in the way they anticipated, not by coming in with a horse and army and running out the Romans, but he fights against the enemies of God's people in sin and the devil. And he saves God's people to make them his own possession. But he doesn't do this in the way they expect. He does not conquer our enemies with a sword, but with a cross. He defeats the enemy of our souls not by taking, the taking of life in battle, but by the giving of his own life in sacrifice. And he creates for himself a people of redeemed sinners By the simple call of the gospel, repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. This is the king that's to come. This is the man who would be king. And he is going to reign and fight against the enemies of God one time for all. And anyone who will trust in Jesus Christ and rest their lives and their souls and their eternity on His finished work of redemption at the cross, will find themselves renewed, restored, forgiven, received by God Himself, a member of the family of God, the people of God. When it came time, when the pressure was on for Jesus, when the moment of the cross was at hand, He went to a garden, but he wasn't hiding. He went to a garden to seek strength from his father because he knew what was coming. And he prayed in that moment, if there's any other way, if this cup can pass from me, let it be. But he submitted himself to the will of God. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And then, of course, we understand the brutal agony that followed in the cross, not just the physical torment and suffering, but the spiritual weight that he would bear as he paid the penalty for our sins and endured the wrath of God against all unrighteousness.